Thank you, Cotton. I am Dot, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I want to, before I get into my story this morning, I want to thank the committee that asked me to come. I usually come to this and have for the past few years. I love coming over here. I get to see a lot of friends that I've known over the years that are real important to me, and it's real good to see you, but it's also good to, to meet new people as we go along in this program, you know, because I told somebody the other day, I said, you know, if it wasn't for the new people, and I see a lot of new people here today, and if it wasn't for the new people, it would be a sad place, even though it is that day, because at home, uh, there are only two people that are in the groups in Statesboro that were there when I came to, to AA. And uh, so it would be uh, sad if we didn't have new people coming in. The new people is what keeps this thing going, and I love having new people come in. Uh, I would like to tell you that this week I passed, I picked up my 33-year shift, and uh, I, I really feel good about that. You know, I really feel good about that. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not really bragging about it, but I've got a lot of gratitude that I've been able to uh, to make those years. A lot of people don't. And I know it's by the grace of God that I have been able to make those years because I've had a lot of hard times. You know, I call them hard times, but when you really look at it, uh, it's not hard times. It's just routine living, re- reality. Uh I, I, to think about the, the addiction that I've had, uh, mine has been a little different from a lot of other people's. Uh, I was asked to talk in Jacksonville a while back, and, and when they called me, they said, you know, uh, last year we had somebody in here that talked about those drugs, and you know, we can't have that. And I said, no, I guess we can't. And when I got there, I totally forgot about that. I got up and introduced myself, and I try not to do it anymore because I don't like to offend people. And if that's, you know, if they don't want you to say you're an addict, that's okay with me. And I was, I was forgot and went ahead and said, I'm Doc Mooney, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm an addict, which I could have left off there easily. I didn't have to say that, and I didn't mean to. But I, because of my alcoholism, I got into drugs real bad. And uh, I did talk about drugs because the big book tells me to share my experience, strength, and hope with other people. And that's what I do. And I remember when I was new, I hadn't been in but a few years, and we felt like Bill Wilson could give us all the answers that we needed. And we had the privilege of spending a weekend with uh, a, a Sunday afternoon with Bill and Lois in their home. And we had all these lists of questions that we were going to ask them, which we did. And we asked him all those questions about this drugs and about all the other things. And he never did give us a direct answer on anything. I remember one thing he said is try it. If it works, you'll know it works. 
If it don't, you'll know it did. And we had we had just waited to ask him all these things. And I've had a lot of privileges that a lot of people really haven't had in this program because I was able to spend a weekend with Bill and Lois in a conference. And uh, I talked about drugs. I was too new to know that there were some people that don't want you to talk about drugs. And I told uh, a lot about my drug problem. And uh, Lois made the Al-Anon talk, and I made the AA talk. And Bill Wilson did not throw me out. He was there. He kissed me and told me he loved me. So I have to tell my story, whatever it may be. And the drugs, it's a big part of my story. But I got on drugs trying to get over hangovers and be able to work and to do the things I had to do because you couldn't smell it. And uh you could I could take the drugs and I had access to them. So I'm an alcoholic, so I'm qualified to be here. Um I grew up in the country and uh I didn't know anything about alcoholism even though we did have it in, in our family. Or not in my immediate family that I know of, but I know Mother had it in her family, and there was a lot of uh, things that were passed on because of a broken home in there, and what I suspect might have been alcoholism, even though I've never been able to find out uh, for sure. Uh, if you go, if you've ever lived in the country and farmed for a living, you know what how that goes, and. Uh, I grew up a feeling insecure about because my daddy, each year we farmed, it was either had rained too much or hadn't rained enough and the crops didn't make and so you were going to starve to death, you know, even though we had plenty and and had to be responsible for other people's uh, survival too. I got a feeling of, of uh, I knew the value of a dollar, I'll put it that way. And... uh out in the country like that, I lived about six miles out from Statesboro. We didn't have a lot of recreation. And I tell you this because it was really, back then, we had a good, what we did have was good recreation. We went, we did a, a my mother liked to do a lot of things. She liked to fish, she liked to picnic, she liked to do anything. Because I think she missed her teenage years and, and picked them up with me in my teenage years, which I liked at the time and had a lot of did a lot of things that other people didn't get to do because of that. My daddy grew a lot of watermelons. I'm gonna tell this somebody asked me to tell it and I'm getting through with. Uh my daddy grew a lot of watermelons and this season I saw a lot of watermelons too that I hoped the people were able to sell. But back in our day you grow them but you couldn't sell them. And uh so we had, you know, most people like watermelon and got it the price they sell for now. I'd love to have a lot of them, you know. But back then, <clears throat> you couldn't sell them. So we had a, a thing that we, type of recreation that we had, and uh what you call a watermelon roast. And uh most people never heard of a watermelon roast. And I feel like it's something everybody needs to know about. Uh, you know, some people haven't been sober long enough to get involved in a real good watermelon roast, but uh, some people have. So uh, what would happen, we would get the community, you know, out in the community like that, you get everybody together and you got your watermelon, big uh, 
two-horse wagon, and you get your grill, like you grill uh, pork, barbecue pork. And you get that big grill going, and you get those watermelons and get the coals just right about late in the afternoon now. And everybody participates in this. And uh, you get those watermelons on, and everybody has to turn, because if you don't, they get too hot on one side. And you, this gives a good party. I mean, it's really a good party. It's a good sober party. And uh, it takes several hours for all that to take place, and those watermelons get just right. And what you do when it gets good and dark, those watermelons are good and hot, and they blow up. They just burst and go everywhere. And everybody runs out in the woods and gets a little piece. And this is... Uh, <laughs> kind of the type of recreation, you know, you had to make your own. And this was a a, a, a good way to have a little uh, fellowship. I'm in favor of those watermelon roasts. I, I think we ought to still have them. Okay. I remember going down the roads with my daddy, turning those watermelon vines. Back then, they didn't have machinery. And I spent many a day walking with my daddy down those roads, one row at a time, turning those vines this way. They'd plow them on that side, and then we'd go down and turn them this way, and they'd plow them down that side, you know. And those are good memories for me. I have a lot of good memories. I grew up in a home that I think was a stable home. I never had any fear of anything happening to my mother or my father, like a lot of children do. So I know it must have been a stable home. It was a, a loud place. We always had a lot of people around, and uh, we were uh, always had people visiting. And uh, we just—I just grew up in a home that was always full of people. It was a home. My home was a home. It was not just a house. It was a home. We didn't have a lot of affection. We were never uh, hugged and kissed and a lot and told that, that, that we were loved, but we knew it. I didn't need to be told. I knew it. I was real important to my home, and I knew it. And I think that's one of the most important things we can give our children is that they are important to that home and that they are part of it and that they are in, uh, they have their things to do and their responsibilities because it is our home. And I grew up in that kind of home. Uh, I didn't... Uh, Drink, I don't remember drinking in school, high school, or dating anybody that drank, and and I just didn't. Even though my daddy drank, I saw my daddy drink too much a couple of times, and uh, my mother enjoyed a drink, and they made wine, they made beer and all that, but it was not an alcoholic home that I know of. Uh, I don't think they were alcoholic. Uh, I... Uh, I left home early, and, uh, well, after I graduated from high school, I went to Savannah, went in training, and uh, I stayed about a year and got homesick. By that time, I didn't want to stay at home because Mother wouldn't let me do just what I wanted to do, and she was pretty strict, and so I went to Savannah, went in training for a nurse, and I stayed about a year. I didn't finish my training, and I came home and was offered a job in the States for a hospital, Bullock County Hospital, and I worked there about six years. And uh, I used to say I started drinking after I got to work at the hospital there. But I know now, because I found a diary uh, uh, about three or four years ago, about three years ago. And all these years, now I've been in a 30 years, 
at that time. Say and I started drinking uh, after I came back to Statesboro and went to work, and I really thought that was true. You know, we need to really check out some of these things because we we don't know the truth. You know, my life in AA has not been uh, a matter of lying. My life has been, I didn't know the truth. And if you drink and take drugs or either one and uh, and have blackouts, you don't know you have a blackout usually unless somebody tells you. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have convulsions and don't know it unless somebody tells them. It, you know, I've seen a lot of convulsions, and the person that has it, it doesn't impress them a lot. It's the people that watch it that gets impressed, you know. And uh, and I thought I was telling the truth about all this, you know. But I found that uh, diary, and I it was my it was three year it was five year diary, and I had kept three years of it during my last year in high school, and uh, a couple of years after that. And I found uh, I think. God intended for me to find that. I didn't find it. One of my children found it and read it first and then gave it to me, which was okay. Uh, I didn't write anything in there that, that Mother could understand because I knew she would read it, and I had a lot of uh, code stuff <laughs> all through there, and I couldn't remember the code. But I found out that my drinking started earlier than I thought it did because after I finished high school, it must have been right after, but somewhere in there, that I went to Folly Beach, and I believe that must be when I took my first drink. I don't remember my first drink like a lot of people because alcohol was in our home, and we used it when we had colds, we had cramps, and it was given to us as a sweet and toddy, and I liked, I always liked the sweet and toddy, but you didn't get it unless you were sick, but I stayed sick a lot, you know. I mean, really, it was, I can see that now. And in our home, you weren't allowed to stay in the bed unless you were sick. So, you know, I'm, I love the bed. I can stay in the bed round the clock. I just love the bed. I'm the best bed person anybody's ever seen. I love to stay in the bed. I've never been ready to get up. And I just, you know, uh, and so you had to be sick to stay in the bed. And you had to be sick to get hot toddy. So I can look back now and see that that, was, that played a, a, a big thing in my life back there, but I didn't know it. But I found out a lot. I, I had resented my mother all the years I'd been in AA. And I don't really know why I resented my mother. I thought I did. But when I read that diary, I found all the fun things I had had in my life. My mother was responsible for me being able to do those things. And uh, I had nothing bad about, I mean, I really didn't have any bad thoughts about my mother back then. It was after, I think it was after I started drinking that I could not look my family in the eye. And I started to resent them because I think it was my own guilt and the way I was living that uh, kept me uh, resenting my family. Because I feel like the people we resent the most are the people we love the most. And I think that's why, because if we don't love them, if it's somebody I don't care about, I really don't have that much feeling about it one way or the other. You know, if I don't care about somebody, it's not important to me, uh, really about how they feel about me. And uh, I'm exactly like my mother. My mother died a year ago, and thank goodness I was able to work through a lot of these resentments, but it took me a long, long time. And I know 
what resentment can do to us. Uh, but anyway, I, I I left my training and went to work, and I knew I'd started drinking then, but look back, it had been a lot earlier than that. And I drank what I thought was socially, but I'm like the speakers have said, somebody said last night, I think, all that was alcoholic drinking, but I didn't know it. Now, I'm one that grew up in the church. My mother always bragged. She thought it was real neat that the first place she ever took us was to church. I don't know why that was so important to her, you know, because you, you too little remember anything, but it was just, it did her a lot of good. And she took us to church, and we went, and uh, I grew up in the Baptist church. Now, I don't know, I don't know what I heard or what was in my mind. I had a tendency to misinterpret things. And uh, I I had a lot of fear of God. My mother was still introduced when she died as a God-fearing woman. And uh, we were taught the fear of God, that if you are good, God loves you, you know. And I was really taught that. And But I know somewhere along the line I heard about the love of God, but I just didn't didn't keep that. And so I grew up with a lot of fear of God, but I didn't have a lot of problem about that. And when I stopped going to church, I can see now was when I started drinking. And uh, I can I can pinpoint that, that I just put God aside, and I know now that it was because uh, I was more comfortable doing what I was doing and living the way I was living than I was with keeping God in my life. So I just held on to the drinking and kept uh, and pushed God out of my life. And I didn't really go to church during those years and didn't want to think about God because it bothered me when I did. Had to stay away from the church, had to stay away from my family because I was living in a way that I knew was not right. Because if you grow up like I did in the Baptist church and get carried from the time you're born, you know, these moral principles are pretty strict. They're good, they're good principles. And, uh, but when I started drinking, all that went out. And I went my way. I can look back now, and my life was just uh, a life of, of fun for me, doing exactly what I wanted to do with and trying not to think about uh, how wrong it was. And I did that. I worked at the hospital for about six years. And that's where I met the man that I married. He had just come from, he'd been in World War II, and he was just back from the service. And when I met him, he was still married. And I knew his wife because she was a good friend of a friend of mine. And, uh, because I was just having my good time. You know, I always had a good time. I was a fun person. I was always uh, didn't matter what time I came home, didn't matter what time I left, it didn't matter, just so I got to work. And and I had this too. I thought if you could kept your job and went to work every day, you were a real responsible person, mature. I thought that meant maturity because I never lost a job. I went to work, did what I was supposed to do, and I loved my work, loved my work. And uh, I knew I was good. But uh, I look back now, and I was I was I could do my job until I and later I couldn't. But uh, I was not a mature, responsible person. 
But I had fun. I had, uh, I guess it's just as well I had my fun. I really had it. I don't have to, I don't look back and say I never had any fun. I got a lot of good memories. I had a good time drinking for a long time. But, uh, I, uh, when I met, uh, the man that I married, um, uh, I met him and then I was working at the hospital and that's where I met him. And, uh, he was divorced shortly after that, and we started going together immediately, and uh, first uh, just drinking together. I know that's what attracted us to each other. I feel like it was. We were drinking partners. We loved drinking. And him fresh divorced, and me already drinking alcoholically now, I know. I didn't know it then, but we... You know, you talk about fun. That was fun. He was different from anything I had ever met before. And I think I knew then it was something I couldn't handle, but I, you know how when we're drinking, we'll take it on. And uh, when we got married, nobody was in favor of us getting married. We weren't even in favor of it, I don't think. We tried not to get married. We tried to stay away. And and that was an addiction to me, just like my alcohol. Uh, we'd swear off and we'd be back together before the night was gone, you know. So uh, eventually we... Uh, after about a year and a half of going together, we did get married. And it really didn't make any difference to me whether anybody approved of it or not. It was something we needed to do. And uh, we, uh, he had been married 10 years, didn't know whether we would have children or not. And uh, But the first year, we were married a year when we had our first child. And... Uh, Drinking and, and, uh, had not been talked about. It never had been talked about. One time I told him that if he didn't quit drinking, that I wasn't going out with him anymore. And, uh, he didn't drink. I didn't smell alcohol on him anymore, but I remember telling him one time, you know, uh, I don't smell alcohol, but you don't look right. Your eyes don't look right. And I know now, I learned later, that he had been on drugs uh, before I ever met him and had had some real difficulty with it. But you know, alcoholics, we don't tell people those things. And, and a lot of times we don't really know what's going on with this. But uh, we had uh, three children right pretty close together there, and we continued to drink, having difficulty. Now, I have to tell his story because it's such a part of mine. Uh, we had, uh, he knew he had a problem uh, after about a year and a half of marriage. He knew he had a problem and the hospitalization started. And uh, it wasn't too long after that that, that uh, we were told that he was addicted to drugs. And uh, so the hospitalization started for him and then the hospitalization started for me. Back then, it was real, I guess, popular to have nervous breakdowns. And that's what I got treated for from the beginning. I got treated for nervous breakdowns. And I had them, too. I mean, I had good ones. Uh, if you don't have one, have a good one. And I did. I didn't know what was wrong. And this is my my uh lack of maturity and, and lack of ability to cope with everyday living when I got these three children. 
and uh, a husband that was in and out and gone. And I think when I got married, I, I turned my will and my life over to care of my husband. I had had my life and was doing fine on my own. But I think down deep, I was probably looking for somebody to turn it over to that would take care of it for me. Because I think that's what I did. And he was a good keeper when he was sober. He was a, a good keeper and a good enabler. We enabled each other. We almost killed each other trying to help. And uh, it, it kind of went this way. He would go in the hospital and I'd always go with him because they had a tendency in hospitals not to give him enough drugs to relieve his pain. And I would take the little doctor's bag in all the hospitals we went in and keep it in the room with us because he would hurt and they didn't keep him relieved. And when you stay and sleep on a cot, you need some relief yourself. So I always had that bag in there. And we stayed pretty comfortable. <laughs> and it is so sick. It is so sick. I can see now, but I didn't see a thing. And I went with him everywhere he went to take care of him. And Scott, if you're doing that, don't do it. Don't do it. Let somebody else take care of him. But I couldn't do that. And then eventually my nervous breakdowns got so bad uh, that I started going to hospitals. Now, I didn't uh, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I had no idea that I was alcoholic. I had no idea I was an addict. And we had access to drugs, and we got drugs illegally. You know, I was one of those kinds that says, well, I've never taken street drugs. You know, I thought that was real something to be proud of. But, you know, the body doesn't know where the drugs come from. It doesn't know whether they come from the street or prescription. And a lot of people say, well, they were prescription drugs. But prescription drugs, the reason you have to have a prescription is because they're dangerous drugs. You know, and, and so I was all messed up in all of that. It just was real sick. But I got to having, he was going to the psychiatrist, and I'd go with him to tell his psychiatrist about him because I knew he wouldn't tell it through. I never told one anything about me. And uh, I just went to, to his psychiatrist. But then we it got worse and worse now. I'm just going to hit some of the high things in here. Things like one night I remember uh, the bed. I, he smoked and I didn't smoke. And finally I just started smoking too. And I did one of these things. Now these are my symptoms of alcoholism. I'd, I'd, I started trying to smoke, and I'd be so full of Demerol that I'd get the wrong end and stick it to my uh, face. And, get, you know, they're bad burns. And I would tell people that I was frying chicken and that the grease popped out on me. Now, that kind of stuff is what, that's the way I was living. And then I got so afraid that, that, he, that we were going to burn up with his smoking. And uh he uh would put his hand over the bed and, and the cigarettes would drop down on the floor and it was just burns all over everything and I got so afraid of, of us burning up because I had left one night because I didn't think I could stand it and I needed some rest. I needed a good night's sleep. And I got up in the night about 3 o'clock in the morning and took the children and went to my mother's house. First time, only time I ever left him. And I got out there, and I was so worried that he was going to burn up that I picked him all up and went straight back home, and I never left again because I knew I couldn't. I worried about him more away from him than I did with him, and I learned something that night, so I never left again. But in this, he tried to help because he he got a rug. I don't know where he got it. He told me he got it overseas. 
And he says, this is my rug. He put it down under the edge of the bed. He said, this is my rug. I bought it with my money, and I bought it to burn. <laughs> and he explained it to me over and over. He was real good. He was a good teacher. And he explained it over and over, and I, I could never understand it. And I said, as good as he is explaining things, and if I can't understand it, I must be gone crazy. So I got me a psychiatrist, and I went, I thought if I couldn't understand that, then I needed a psychiatrist. So I got me a psychiatrist, and I went to the psychiatrist, and I told him what it was I couldn't understand. Well, I don't think he really understood it either. But he tried to help me, and I went to him a while, and the more I went, the worse I got. He, he prescribed tranquilizers. They were the end thing then. Anyway, we went to social functions. We would give out and exchange tranquilizers. If anybody was nervous, I'd give them a, a meal towns, what it was back then. Chuck, you remember that. And, uh, if anybody was nervous, we just passed out pills. It didn't matter, you know. And we'd take them. Uh, they were popular. And, uh, it was the end thing, because everybody's hung over that I ran around with. That's why I was taking them. I was hung over trying to function. And, uh, Anyway, I kept going, and, and I, I got real sick, real, real, real sick and afraid and depressed, and it got so bad. One day I went in and told this uh, psychiatrist that if he didn't do something for me, I was going to kill myself. I was threatening him because that was the only way I knew to ask for help. That was a cry for help. I, I, that was, I had no intention of really killing myself. I didn't want to die. I just didn't want to live like I was any longer. I knew I couldn't. And by this time, I really wanted and needed some help for me. But uh the only way I knew to, to, to ask for it was to tell him if he didn't do something for me, I would kill myself. And that's when he put me in the hospital and started giving me electric shock treatment. And uh I got those for years. I don't know. I remember Dr. John told me, he said, you know, the happiest I ever was was when you were getting those shock treatments. Because I could go up there with a fifth of liquor and I could sit in the room with you all night and you wouldn't fuss at me. You know? Now that's sick, isn't it? And, uh, I had them for years. I had them in, in, in several weeks at the time and then we'd skip weeks and I'd go back and go in the hospital. I don't remember, uh, a lot about dates and times during all this, but I know I got addicted to the shock treatment. And I used to, uh, when I first came to AA, I didn't talk about that because other people that mentioned uh, shock treatments would talk about how bad it was. They didn't like them. And they had a horror of ever getting another one, so I didn't talk about it. I thought I, you know, I didn't want to seem strange or something. But I know now what I liked was the sodium pentothal. When they got theirs, they were in the state hospital and they didn't get the sodium pentothal. They said they just hooked them up and shot them that, like that. And I got the sodium pentothal. And that's what I was addicted to. It was the only relief I had. It was total oblivion. It was prescribed and given by a doctor. And I loved it. So every time I felt a nervous coming on, I'd get in the car and go to Savannah and get me a shock treatment. Now, I'm at home with three children, trying to take care of children, feeling totally responsible for everything, 
and totally out of my mind. I was in such a condition, I'd come home and I wouldn't even know, recognize the clothes in the closet as mine. I didn't know. And me being responsible for three children and a family, continuing, you know, because I knew nobody could do without me, you know. I learned something about that, too. I've learned one of you don't stop no show. <laughs> but then I I felt totally responsible for all that. But anyway, I got those uh, shock treatments. I'm going to tell you one other little symptom that we had of, of addiction and alcoholism. At this time, it was always drinking and, and drugging, and we did. it was never put together. It was never put together. As, as total addiction. And uh, one time it got so bad, and I thought I was going to help him get off drugs. I was on them, but it never occurred to me that, that it would be a problem for me to come off of them. But he must have known it because we went to uh, Myrtle Beach, you know, to Asheville, North Carolina. I think it was Asheville that time. And, and uh, we went in a hospital, and they wouldn't keep us because we wouldn't stay I went to a psychiatric hospital. Everything was back then was psychiatric, and and you were treated uh, for psychiatric problems. And we went in the hospital, and we really wanted to stay a few days and kind of get detoxed and then go on back, and they wouldn't take us unless we would agree to stay, which we wouldn't. So they gave us some drugs that day, and we went on and got a motel room. Now, he's a doctor, and I'm nursing. So we treat each other. We go by a surgical supply place, and we get... Uh, Sterilizers, syringes, insulin. Insulin was in then. You get the insulin shock treatment. So we were going to withdraw ourselves that way. We went in a motel. We had all this equipment. We had glucose. We had everything we needed. And we stayed in that motel for two or three weeks. And there were times that I know that he was in shock. And there were times that he knew I was in shock. And I'm sure there were times we were both in shock. And there was no human power looking after us. That's one of the first things I recognized when I got to AA. Is that is total insanity. And nothing but the love of God. The grace of God saved us. I know that. Because you don't even do that in a hospital without somebody there to check you. I don't think they do it a lot anymore anyway. But here we were in a motel room. And it's a, it's a miracle that we got out of that. Finally, I got weak and sick, and you get so relaxed that you can't get up, and uh, called home and got an ambulance to come get us. I told them we had the flu. And uh, we had a motorcade going back with the ambulance. We had all kinds of, uh, somebody had to come drive our car, and. We had a, it was, and we stopped, and we'd been there two or three weeks, and we stopped at every doctor's home or office we could find, all the way from Asheville back to Statesboro to get something for the pain. Now, that's insanity. I remember one doctor was out fishing on his lake, and here went the ambulance, the cars, and everything down there to see the doctor to get something for our pain. Now, you know, that's insanity. But it was saying to us, that's what's so crazy about this thing. And we got home, and we got in the hospital there for the flu. And when we got there, I remember he said, honey, I'm going to call the drugstore and get us some Demerol. And I said, okay. So he called the drugstore, 
they sent three ampules, and he ordered more than that. So I remember when it came, he was in one room and I was in another room, but now we're in the same room. And uh, I can just see those people watching us. And he said, honey, they didn't send but three ampules. I'll tell you what I do. Because we had actually, we had all of our equipment. He said, I'll take two and give you one. I said, the hell you will. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you learn to be assertive and aggressive with that drugs and stuff. And I never had that. I never, I would never said anything to him like that about anything else. But I stood up for my rights that day, and I got one and a half, and he got one and a half. <laughs> and, you know, that's insanity. So I do know about drugs, and I know the drugs came because of my alcoholism. I, I took drugs to try to function and to ease my pain. I would have taken anything that would have eased my pain. And, uh... Finally, he got off to a hospital, uh, not voluntarily. He had been to every place there was you could go in the United States that I know of. And, uh, but he was always treated for mental and emotional problems. And I, I'm pretty sure he must have been diagnosed alcoholic because he said they gave him the big book of AA when he was in Connecticut. But he didn't, didn't apply it to him at all. But he, did get into a place that did help him, and this was not a voluntary trip. And uh, that was in uh, 1959 that he went to Lexington, Kentucky, and that is where he joined Alcoholics Anonymous in that institution. He had a sponsor in there. He started writing me about AA. He was on the uh, editor of their little paper there, and I was at home, trying my best to survive and keep those children and keep things going. I had a lot of resentment because he was always the one that was gone and I was always the one that was at home. That's why I appreciate Al-Anon so. I was left with all the bills and all the mess and everything and I resented it. I built up so so much resentment during those years. And he got sober in there, learned he was alcoholic, and uh, came back. He was gone four and a half months. Now, during this time is when I knew I had never drunk alone. I never had to. And those last few months, I was drinking alone. And I found myself one afternoon out at the American Legion waiting for them to open. And uh, I, I, I recognized that, and I knew something's wrong with this. I had never even really had to buy my own liquor or drugs. But now I'm going to the American Legion to get beer, and I'm just on beer, and I think that's because I knew the alcohol would, uh, the liquor would, would I, I think I knew I couldn't control it. And I was trying to drink just beer, which I was doing. And uh I knew something was wrong when I found myself out at the American Legion. That was one symptom, by myself waiting for the man to come and open up. Another uh symptom was, he, uh Dr. John was writing me about AA, and uh I know it was uh, 
it was during this time that it was beginning to get to me a little bit, because he was coming home, and I did not want to be drinking when he came home, because I didn't want him to drink. That's why I didn't think I should be drinking. And uh, that uh, I had uh, written him that I was trying to quit drinking because I didn't want him to drink. And uh, he had written me to tell me to get the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and read it. And I thought, my God, he's in bad shape. But he, I can't even read. I hadn't read a newspaper in months. Couldn't read the headlines. And he ought to know I couldn't read a big book. So I, uh, during this time, I got up on Sunday morning still trying to be responsible, taking my children to Sunday school. And doing all the things a mother should do, but I couldn't go go with them any longer. And that bothered me. I felt guilty about that. I was the most guilt-ridden person you can imagine. And uh But this particular Sunday morning, while all this was going on, I got up to take my children to Sunday school, and I was so nervous that I couldn't get them dressed and I couldn't take them. I opened the refrigerator and got a can of beer, and had to drink that can of beer before I could get my children to take them to Sunday school. And I stood in my own kitchen and cried while I drank it. It was not what I wanted to do. It was what I had to do to function. And that was my last drink. But it wasn't my last drug. But I felt better now. I'm not drinking because he's coming home and, and I won't be drinking. And... Uh, that disturbed me so that I did that. See, I had never drunk alone at all. And I had never bought my own liquor. It disturbed me so that I went out and talked to my brother because I used to drink with my brother. And I went out and talked to him and told him about drinking that beer that morning. And he doesn't know anything. He still doesn't know anything about alcoholism and doesn't care about knowing anything about alcoholism. And that's okay with me now. But he, I remember he said, Dot, you're an alcoholic and you don't need to be drinking with anybody. You don't need to be drinking at all. I don't, I still don't know where that came from, but, or whether it's even true or not, but that's the way I remember it. And, uh, I didn't drink anymore, but I, I was not on narcotics, but I was on all the tranquilizers and sleeping pills and, uh, maybe some, no, I wasn't on narcotics at that time. And then when he came home, he something had happened to him. You know, if 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 you start working this program and, and really sincere about it, it usually shows. He was different. He had never been that way before. He took the children, I remember when he got home, he took the children upstairs and talked to them about what he was trying to do. He had never done that before. And he talked to them about God. He tried to explain to them. I've heard them tell this in their Al-Anon talks. And if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't know it. That he told them about God and how God was in each one of them. You know? And uh, I remember the first al talk I ever heard Al make. He said, my daddy came home. He was a changed man. When I saw him walk down the road going in the church, I knew he was a changed man. And, uh, and he was. Now, I'm angry. He's ready to be sober. He's, something has happened, and he is truly ready to be sober. And he had enough of the program. 
to carry him through these years that we had that was so rough. And uh because I was angry, I was resentful, and really I had I didn't didn't think I loved him anymore. And what I really wanted was a divorce. I wanted to get away from him. I could see those feelings and yet know damn deep that all this I loved him, but I was scared to death of the whole thing. I started going to AA with him to help him. I watched him very closely. I talked to the other people about him, and I did everything in the world I could to help him. I'd call his attention to things he needed to hear, and um, the, uh, there was never but one woman that had joined AA in Statesboro at that time, and thank God for her, because she was married to an alcoholic too, and she had joined AA, and she didn't make it. This this lady died still on her drugs and drinking, but she was a big help to me because uh, I took his inventory constantly, and I talked, and I think she got tired of hearing that. And one day, I was talking about him and his problem, and I remember she, I know she was nervous about what she was going to say, but she, she looked down at her foot. She didn't look me straight in the eye, and I was, all this stuff I was telling and she said, Dot, you know, I heard one of my customers say, if you'd straighten up, that John would be all right. God, I hated her. And I didn't like her anyway. She had a bad reputation. She had a reputation for drinking pretty heavy, you know. And I thought, for her to say something like that to somebody like me, you know, that was just awful. But, you know, I started taking my inventory that night. I got, who in the hell told her that? <laughs> but you know, I got looking at it and I remembered the times I'd been out drinking, drunk, wouldn't remember going home. I'd get up the next day, not remember anything, and I'd always ask him, what'd I say, what'd I do, all this. He said, honey, you were fine. You didn't say, he never told me anything that was wrong with what I was doing, and I believed him. And, uh, but anyway, I really got into my, uh, inventory, and you know, it's, uh, I'm glad everything didn't hit me at one time, because there was no way on God's earth I could have dealt with it, and it came to me gradually, and that's when I realized that so much of my problem was not knowing the truth. I did not know the truth, and I fully believe that we as alcoholics do not know the truth about a lot of things. And it's been a discovery over all these years uh in my life trying to get to the truth. Uh well we had a we had a lot of uh, relationship problems. And uh <clears throat> I didn't go to Al Anon. They told you back then if you get to Al Anon you may get drunk if you're an alcoholic. They'd say, Oh God, you better stay in AA so you won't get drunk. And uh so I stayed in AA. I, I look back now. And I think if I had gone to Al-Anon, I would have uh, maybe seen a lot of these things earlier. But as it was, I stayed sober. And I got, uh, we, we, we did a lot of traveling and going places and doing things that were we enjoyed. We were enjoying it, but I still had resentment. And if I don't say anything else, I'd like to let you all know that if you have these deep resentments, Please try to work on them and through the steps and relieve yourself 
or help God relieve you of those. See, I was trying to remove those things myself, and it was impossible. And after 10 years sobriety, I, I realized the step says, you know, we were entirely ready to have God remove these things. And then we humbly asked God to remove them. And I'd been in a 10 years, still fighting, still struggling, still trying to do it myself before I realized that. And I did become entirely, entirely, the step says entirely ready. And I did humbly ask God to help me uh, to remove those things. And I became willing to do some things I had not been willing to do before. Like talk about my real feelings. I still played those games, hiding my feelings and expecting somebody else to know how I feel and to do for me the things that I wanted them to do without me ever telling them. And I became willing to do that and I began to get better. We worked on our relationship. We got in, in, in groups with other people having the same problems we had. We talked about it freely. We worked on our relationship and that worked out real good. And uh, we got a good relationship going. I no longer had my resentment. And uh, I even overcame uh, a lot of my resentments toward my family and my mother, uh, my brother, and the people I loved the most or the people that I resented the most. And uh, we got uh, through, and, and through all this, you know, we began to see alcoholics a lot from the day we got sober because there were no places to take alcoholics at that time, and because he was a doctor but that had an alcohol problem and knew it and talked about it, I guess we just had a lot of people coming to see us from everywhere uh, about the, the alcoholism. You know, they could call Statesboro and ask for that drunk doctor. They didn't even have to know his name. They'd call our house. And we had a lot of people coming in, and I had four, I had a baby. That's the first thing I had after I got sober was a baby that I didn't really know how to take care of what I had. But it was a blessing. God knew what I needed. And I had uh, my first girl. And uh, things were going good for us. We had taken people in, and finally somebody came to us and told us, you need a hospital. And we didn't know it. And uh, so we managed and built a hospital. got some of the people out of the house and we were real uncomfortable with that because we'd gotten used to them and we loved them. And, uh, but anyway, we, uh, that's the time we got our marriage worked out and we got the hospital built and we, we were doing pretty good. Then my children are all grown now. It's hippie stage. They all want to be hippies. And, uh, they're into their alcoholism. And one by one, we, the, the, uh, the youngest son came in and joined AA. He, I think he tried to join Al-Anon. He didn't know where he belonged. And uh, somebody finally, you know, if you leave people alone, let them go where they want to go. They'll find where they belong after a while when they clear up enough. But you know, what difference does it make? They got a program, they'll go in the meetings, leave them alone. If anybody had questions, my going to AA or why I was going to Al-Anon, I might have gone back and never gone. Leave them alone. They'll find where they belong when they clear up enough. And uh, he w- he tried going to Al-Anon, he says in his talk, and, and uh, finally he got to AA where he belonged, and he never drank again. He's been sober now a long time. And then the uh, this AA baby that grew up never knew any of us to drink. 
my only daughter. Uh, now she's hippie. All she wants to be is a hippie. And she made a good one. Real good one. And, uh, after years and years and years of that, uh, she's sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. When she got ready to get sober, she came to AA and got sober. And, uh, she's been sober now a long time. There's a lot of heartache. I learned more about powerlessness through her alcoholism than I ever learned through my own or my husband. Total powerlessness when I had to say, honey, I can't help you. You'll have to call somebody wherever you are because I didn't take you there and I can't help you. That was on the Thanksgiving. I'll never forget it. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. We had to stop enabling. We had to let go, absolutely. And fortunately, we were able to do that. And then during that time is when Dr. John became real sick. He had been sick. He was sick all through this, a lot of this. And it was some rough years. But, you know, all this is just reality. And I've had to learn to adjust to reality. You know, maturity is learning to live comfortably with unsolved problems. I didn't know that. I didn't know you could be comfortable if you hadn't solved your problems. I always thought you had to get the blame where it needed to go. That's the first thing you do. Get the blame where it needed to go. I won't ever forget one time I, I had that finger going. I was getting the blame where it needed to go, which was on him. And he looked at me and he said, Honey, you know, you really don't have to blame anybody. You don't have to blame yourself. You don't have to blame me. It's just look at the situation and see what you can do to make it better. And God, I have remembered that. Ooh, I remember that. Such a blessing that I heard that. You know, there's some things I heard when I came to AA, and I'm going to tell you a couple of things that were real important that helped me to do what I needed to do when I got in this program. One of them was uh, these old-timers, they always had some smart stuff to say, you know, and they still do. And uh, this one said, you know, if you're sitting out there taking mood-changing drugs, you'd be better off to go back to your liquor. And that's when I was new. That was before I picked up my chip, Joe Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was one of the things that helped me do it, too. I heard what that man said. And see, by this time, this is a program of attraction. I wanted what those people had, and I meant to get it. I went home, and I threw all my drugs, all my pills, down the toilet at one time. I wouldn't do it again, because I didn't know what I was in for. I didn't know anything about withdrawal. But I did it, and I got through it. That's why I know the AA program works. I got through it. I didn't even tell anybody I'd throw them away. I didn't know anybody knew I was on them. And um, another thing that I heard in those same two or three weeks, and I think it was Virgil Warren that said that. He said, if you are dependent on another human being for your happiness, you are going to be sadly disappointed. And I'm sitting there totally dependent on my husband for my every need. That's one of the first things I recognized that, that my sickness was coming from. I was totally dependent on him and my depression, my depression came from knowing he was going to die and that I wouldn't be able to survive without him. 
And I'm, I've always said I might could stand another drunk, but I couldn't stand another depression. And I'll do anything to keep from getting back in that depression, from just being sick and tired of the way I'm living. But that helped me a lot. And they'll say those two statements helped me to join Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, during Dr. John's sickness, the, uh, we got through that and got through his death in 1983. And, uh, you know, the thing that I had worried so much about was losing him. But I had done something about my insecurity and I had made some progress. I'd made a lot of progress in that area. And by the time I lost him, I was able to do that. Uh, at that time, uh, the daughter was still in a lot of trouble. She had uh, just gotten sober when he died and uh, had had her first child, which was a blessing. I think that was all God's plans, and it was meant to be that way. Um, got through that, and then later, the, the, and I do want to say this because I, I thought about Dick and, and Wanda's death and uh, about how these things that you dread so much sometimes can be spiritual things because his death was spiritual to me. It was one of the most beautiful experiences that I've ever had in my life. That doesn't mean I didn't go through a lot of grief. I did, but it was spiritual for all of us. And uh, soon after that, uh, the youngest, no, the middle son, wife joined AA. And then later, he joined AA. Now, this girl that had such a problem is married to a sober alcoholic in the program. And uh, the son that's always been a member of Al-Anon is an Al-Anon member. The youngest son's wife is sober in AA. And everybody in our family is in the program. And all of them are sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just don't see any better way to have a life than that. There is no way if I had planned my life and what I wanted, I would have cut myself short. Because it's just, it's just a miracle that that many people out of four children, three are alcoholics, three are married alcoholics, they're all sober and alcoholics anonymous. Now that is just a miracle that you don't hear about very often. And that's been the greatest joy in the world for us to be able to function as a family. Uh, Bobby went on to medical school. He's in his second year residency now. Carolyn just left and went to uh, law school. She's uh, working, and it just shows you get sober, you can do whatever you choose to do. You know, I've had a life that was impossible, would have been impossible without this AA program. You know, the God of my understanding, and that was one of the hang-ups I had was my fear of God. And the big book says we got to be willing to let go of our old ideas. And that old idea about God being a punishing God is one of the old ideas that had to go. And I learned about God through you people in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where God is. God works through people. I had heard that in church. I didn't understand it. God works through people. And the understanding that I have of God has come through you people. And that's the way it works. 
And I have a relationship with God now that I didn't know was possible. It's a security. I remember the first time I felt it. It was years ago. And I don't feel that way all the time. But I felt it very strongly one day because I was a worry. I was worrying about starving to death, worrying about losing my home because it was all on the verge of being gone. And one day I realized when I caught myself worrying about losing everything, I realized that regardless of what happened to things, I can be okay. It was the best feeling. You know, I even went so far as to say, you know, I love to camp. If I lose my home, i got to camp. You know, and I love the woods and I love to camp. It was a feeling that whatever happened in this world, I would be okay. The greatest feeling I've ever had. I've had uh, I've had some reality in the last nine years that, you know, I don't like, but I'm okay with it. I got on one of my little kicks the last this last year of being worried about things and things piled up bigger than I could handle. And one day I just said to hell with it. I left it, turned it all over to God, and it's all all right. It's all the same mess it was when I left it, but I ain't worrying about it. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Things is not what it's about. I have a power now that I know is there and uh, that I'll be okay regardless of what happened. And when I can have that relationship right, and it doesn't stay that way all the time, but when that's right, that's the most secure feeling I can have. And it doesn't involve material things and stuff. And that's why I hang around the meetings. I go to meetings because I like that feeling. I like a lot of enthusiasm. I can't get up and get around like I used to. I can't go to you anymore and stand and talk to you. I have to sit. But I'm going to look into that next week. I'm going to get a second opinion on my knees. And if they say I need new ones, I'm going to buy me some. And uh, because I like the fellowship, I love the program, and I love everything about it. And everything I have in this world that's of value at all came to me through the Alcoholics Anonymous program. And I feel like that my sobriety, really, I've had to work to have it. But it's been by the grace of God. It's been a gift from God. And I feel like what I do with that sobriety... I hope somehow can be of some gift to God and my fellow man. Thank you, and I love you. Thank you.